It's a delight to be here with you once again. And it's a special delight to hear Verlin share what he just said. And uh, that's not just uh, entertainment. That's not just personal with him. That's inspirational because what it t told me, Verlin has an identity not only as a person. He knows where he came from. He knows an awful lot of spiritual investment behind him. And uh, it gives him confidence in that he is a part of a great cloud of witnesses, and he is a part of a mission that God gave him just like God gave his ancestors. And so that's a, that's a privilege. And uh, I, I, he has introduced me to something I have to talk to him about later, about all the access and information he portrayed up there. So I don't want to get started on that right now. Let's uh, first of all do our uh, essence, the Anabaptist vision first. All together, the essence of the Anabaptist vision. Jesus Christ, through the Holy Scriptures, is the ultimate authority. Since he is, I order my life in discipleship to him. When others do the same, I enter into a body relationship with them called the church. The church, unique from its host culture, supernaturally celebrates the love of Christ as it cooperates with him to build the kingdom of God in the world today. Again, the essence of the Anabaptist vision. Jesus Christ, through the Holy Scriptures, is the ultimate authority. Since he is, I order my life in discipleship to him. When others do the same, I enter into a body relationship with them called the church. The church, unique from its host culture, supernaturally demonstrates the love of Christ as it cooperates with him to build the kingdom of God in the world today. This is Saturday night, and I don't want to keep you real long tonight because uh, we need to go home. And I've probably overdone my time the other night, so I'll try to make up for a little bit tonight. And as I meditated on what I had to say last night, and I realized that what I didn't get done tonight, I decided that in light of the fact that there's nobody from a Dutch-Russian culture here, I'm going to just simply drop that story, except for a little bit, and uh, proceed further with the Swiss story. And uh, Verlin has already kind of gone down that track already for me this evening. So lest I get sidetracked, too far, um, I would like to show you something, first of all, from Rembrandt. Some of you recognize Rembrandt as an artist. I just love his work. And I would like to show you a particular picture. Rembrandt knew the Mennonites in Holland, and uh, they were his friends. He was not actually a Mennonite, but he, the picture I want to show you tonight is a picture of a Mennonite. This is one of my favorite pictures. How many of you have ever seen this picture before? The title of this picture is Mennonite Minister Anslow and Wife. Now, I, I wish that you could see that better. I, want, I wish you could see the whole thing.
Okay. That's going to be close enough. Like I say, this is a picture of Mennonite minister Anslow and wife. Now, um, what is Rembrandt emphasizing in this picture? Yeah, he is teaching. Okay, so you notice that the Bible is here. Yeah. But the focus of this picture is not on the Bible. Rembrandt is famous with uh, capturing emotions in pictures. He does a spectacular job in this picture. I just get study and study and study this picture. Think about what has the most light in this picture. Who? The wife. Yeah. Her face. That's what I could study and study and study. But there's something else that is emphasized with light. What is it? Actually not. It is lit, but it's not quite as lighted as something else. Okay, so her face, her head is, has the most light, but there's something else about her has the most light. What is it? Her hands. Exactly. What is in her hands? A handkerchief. Now, what in the world is that all about? Let me explain to you. Okay, so somebody wrote to Rembrandt and said, Rembrandt, why did you do that? Uh, Angelo's voice is what's so wonderful. You couldn't paint his voice. That's what you should have painted. He is known as a Mennonite orator. And I think, as I look at this picture, I think Rembrandt is making fun of this preacher. Now, here's why I think that. If you notice, the table is covered by a luxurious piece of fabric. And you'll notice that on the table, he has a book stand that's holding, I think, a Bible. And maybe there's a second copy of a Bible here. But behind the Bible is a lampstand. There's a candle here that's unlit. There's a candlestick here with no candle. He is explaining something to his wife. Notice he's not looking at her. He's just explaining. See how he has his hand out, gesturing? But what's she been doing? It's not close enough for that. What's she been doing? Ladies, what's she been doing? She's been crying. What I think he's saying, Mennonite minister Angelo, you have all that knowledge. You are a great orator. You can explain everything, but somehow you can't take care of your wife. 
That's why she has that tissue, or that handkerchief. She's been crying. And if you look and study her face, she's not looking at him. She is looking over here. I have no idea what she's thinking. Okay, so this picture represents the Dutch Mennonites. These people were Waterlander Mennonites. These people were the first people after persecution stopped to get wealthy. And the wealth shows up in this picture. But somehow their wealth did not take care of everything. And there's a whole story here that I could give that I will just not give tonight. What I have to say tonight is um, maybe a bit on the other side. So let me proceed with more about some of this other side and show you the second thing about the Dutch Mennonites, and then I'll just leave the Dutch Mennonites. I'm going to spend the rest of the evening on our people. There are two skeletons in the Anabaptist closet, and this is uh, related to the first skeleton. This is uh, from Munster. How many of you enjoy Munster cheese? Okay, Munster cheese is named because it comes from the city of Munster, Germany. Well, Munster, Germany is where the Anabaptists decided that they're going to take over the city because Christ is going to set up his kingdom in Munster. These are true Anabaptists, but they decided that the time had come for them to take up the sword. And so they, uh, there's a whole story here. The, the Catholics and the Protestants, believe it or not, joined forces and laid siege to the city for, I don't know, two years to starve these people out, to bring them to heal. And uh, they broke down a number of Anabaptist principles in order to pursue their ideas. They decided they're going to have polygamy. They're going to have common goods. And uh, there was the king, King John Lydon who was supposed to, his word was law, and uh, they gave some people a chance to leave the city if they wanted to, and some of them did get out. But it's just an awful, awful, awful story. People who are willing to violate these principles that we've been talking about just so that they can bring in what they thought was the kingdom of God. Okay? <clears throat> so one of their own people finally betrayed them, and when they came in and captured the city... They killed every Anabaptist they could find, but they took the leaders, Bernhard Rothman was one of them, and they tortured them to death, and then they put them in cages. You see these three cages right here? They strung those cages up in the front of St. Lambert's Church in Munster to show the people what will happen if you let Anabaptism go. If you don't deal with them, remember I said the first evening, that it was represented, it was uh, understood as a criminal activity, it was anarchy, and they had to bring this to heel immediately. <coughs> Basically, they said, if you don't do with, deal with Anabaptists early, this is what they will do throughout Europe. Anywhere they're left to themselves, they will do this kind of thing. And that has followed our people all the way down to 100 years ago. I read John Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress. I did a term paper on him when I was in high school. And he had nothing good to say about Anabaptists. 
And I couldn't figure this out until I understood this story. This has been the story that has surrounded our people for hundreds of years until people 100 years ago began to realize that this story is a fringe Anabaptist story. It's not the main line, but has followed us. Now, if you look in those cages, you don't see any bones anymore today because the, the, the body's all rotted away and uh, the cages also rotted away but they re replaced the cages, but no bones, and they are there to this day. You can go to Europe, and you can take your camera, and it's still there as a silent reminder to Europe of what Anabaptism will do if you let it alone. All right. That's a, a rather macabre story right up front. And so I think I'll leave that unless somebody has a particular question about that. Okay. If that's right. Okay. We'll leave that. I have a number of kind of um, disconnected things now that I would like to bring to your attention. First of all, I would like to look at this question. What antagonizes the young against their own tradition? So what Verlin showed us tonight is an illustration that some people along the way were not antagonized by their own tradition, and they, they brought to uh, life and spiritual health our brother Verlin, okay? So somebody did not do what I'm going to share right here. But this is what happens when we don't do our homework properly, we older people. And I once again want to thank you for allowing me to pay my debt to you. Okay, so let's look at these in detail. When tradition carries an air of superiority. Okay, so can someone tell me what we call history that only shows the good things? What do we call history where you only study successes? No. It's called hagiography. Okay, unfortunately, when some of our people teach history, they only talk about the good things. And I'm telling you that the scriptures say both the bad and good things. For example, of David and Abraham and Noah. The only thing, the only characters that I don't know there's any negative said about is the character of Daniel and Joseph, and of course, Christ. But we live in a fallen world, and we struggle in this fallen world. And we don't help our people, especially our young people, when we don't tell the whole truth. 
The other skeleton in the closet, I do not have time to tell you in this period of time I'm up here. It's uh, the, uh, the story of how Mennonites became Nazis. The German Mennonites, how they became Nazis. It's even worse than the Munster story. But again, it happened because people didn't do their homework. But I can't go there tonight. Secondly, when tradition defenders try to attach a chapter and verse to details, that is called fundamentalism, and I'm not sure if I'm going to get far enough tonight to talk about why fundamentalism works the way it does. Thirdly, when we have things in our story where we're not supposed to question, in other words, when you start moving into section set, uh, stage three and people say, shut up, don't ask questions about it, that's a great way to antagonize young people toward their own story because questions are right and proper, and they should be asking questions, and we should be, as older people, giving good answers to those questions. Okay, fourthly, I tried to emphasize integrity the other night. The other night. I cannot emphasize that enough, because when young people see integrity, they respect it. But the opposite is also true. There is nothing that antagonizes young people more than hypocrisy. People who pretend to be on stage four, but are not. And young people especially are really good at discerning hypocrisy or its absence. Okay, we could talk about these for a while. Fifthly, <clears throat> young people are also very good in picking up parents' disrespect for their own tradition. And so you young parents who have young children, I didn't hear a single bit of disrespect in Verlin's presentation in his devotional tonight. Not a bit. In fact, I heard honor and respect. Our parents did make mistakes. And I'm going to show you more mistakes tonight. But we don't gain anything by disrespecting the people who make mistakes. We learn from mistakes and say, well, okay, if they've done that, well, I sure don't want to do that. I'm not going to disrespect them. I have enough problems of my own. So anytime we're disrespecting somebody, we're elevating ourselves and looking down on those other people and disrespecting, and that does not build the kingdom of God. Okay? Next, absence of historical background. And this is where I could just cry. And I, have, I cannot explain why we, we are not more conversant with our own story. I'm speaking to the Swiss people tonight, the Swiss brethren people. We know American history, but we don't even know our own story. And I, I can't explain it. Another one, personal prejudice. Let me tell you one little story. One of, the reasons, it, one of the reasons the German Mennonites became Nazis is because they took 100 years losing their non-resistance, a little bit at a time. I think I might have the book with me. I'm not sure. It's called Mennonite German Soldier, which chronicles how the church spent 100 years losing their non-resistance just a little bit at a time, so that by the time World War I came along, they're ready to start fighting. And they lost 400 young Mennonite men in World War I. But one of the reasons why the young Mennonite men became Prussian soldiers is 
that the young men got tired of hearing about, quote, the old things, the old stories. Instead, they were energized and excited about standing up straight and tall, you know, and saluting and having sharp pressed uniforms and knowing how to march and have guns and manage guns and so on. That appealed to them. That was colorful. It was exciting. It was dramatic compared to their old stories. And there's a reason why military uses band music. If you've ever watched a military or watched a parade, you notice there's a band that goes with it. Those trumpets and trombones and uh, tubas and all that, and done to a marching step with drums and so on, that stirs the blood. What we ought to have in the story of Christ, blood-stirring stuff, and that's one of the reasons why I read you the story last night about Hans Landis. I think that's blood-stirring. I just love it that the man looked up at the executioner and smiled at him and said, you're going to forgive me too? Right before the man cut his head off. I think that is really good. And there's all kinds of other stories like that. And we heard one of Earl's stories too tonight. <clears throat> and so, I'll just say it the way it is. Okay, so I started teaching Bible school at Calvary Bible School. And one of the things that I first discovered is that I discovered Beachy Amish people were kind of like, I'm kind of embarrassed to be Amish or Beachy Amish. I'm kind of embarrassed that I know how to speak Pennsylvania Dutch. I carry a sense of inferiority about me. I didn't come from that. I came from the very opposite side. We're Mennonites. We are the people. Both of them are wrong. All right, I'm not going to comment more about this one. I'll maybe say some more about that later. Only those who remain under the apprenticeship of their tradition have the power to transcend it. Okay, please hear me. I'm 67. When I hear young Anabaptist whippersnappers talking, sometimes I think, they don't know what they're talking about. But I've also learned you don't, you don't address it with them because they'll just argue. So it's better just to shut up to start with. The people who are the young whippersnappers are basically saying they have no power to transcend their tradition. Yes, we've been around for 500 years. Yes, we have problems we need to be dealing with. Yes, I would like to do something about it. But no, the answer to dealing with those issues is not to run away. The way to deal with those issues is to understand what Jesus says. Get up into stage four as soon as possible. And with the power of God, correct what I can correct. I can correct it first of all in my own life. And I have a family, I can do something about it in my family, and then I can go beyond that. So if you want to be heard when you're 40, be quiet when you're 20. Individuals or churches who have lost sight of their history are experiencing amputation from their historical trunk, and they must die. Their only hope for life is reattachment, and that just is what's such a grief to me. There are so many of our people today 
who have very little interest in their history. And that means that they're willing to be amputated from their historical trunk. They don't know it, but they're going to have to die. How to abandon Anabaptist theology. You undermine biblical authority. And we could talk about each of these for a while. I'm not going to. I'm just going to show you these. Number two, you make traditional ways of reading the Bible seem simplistic and inadequate. Number three, you disparage Anabaptist history. Number four, you lose the two-kingdom concept. Number five, you enthrone self, wealth, and national welfare. I'll talk more about that later. Number six, we justify self-defense and promote the just war theory. Number seven, we adopt the good moral causes of surrounding society. In other words, we enter into the cultural wars. And number eight, we assimilate with surrounding society and identify with it. Okay, so what I would like to share with you tomorrow night is an illustration of this one. And it's a documentary. Um, it's real. It actually happened in two, 1967. And we're going to see this, and then I want to talk to you about the question-answer period after. And so, the symptoms of approaching death is, first of all, anything that's dying is close to death, death is okay. Just the sooner the better. There's little energy to fight for life. Their belief in comfortable lies, acquiescence in the inevitable, and there's a feeble response to stimuli. That means death is just about there. And so that's kind of discouraging, it's kind of negative, but I would like to talk about what it takes so we don't even get close to that. So <clears throat> we got to just deal with some reality here. Um, the pilgrim church will endure. Jesus says, I will build my church beginning with the cross, and we have up today. But if you read the 2,000-year story, you're going to find constantly there are people who go off to the left in the interest of the flesh, but they do it always in the name of Christ. At the same time, they're all, history is littered with people who go off to the right in the name of Christ. They do it in license to coercion. Got to make people do what's right. They're both done in the name of Christ. But they're both failures. And that's what 2,000-year story shows. And we'll talk about more about that in some of our story tonight. So the real question is, what does it mean to follow Jesus Christ in daily life? That's the perennial question. And that's what we want to think about tonight. <clears throat> Okay, so think about this with me. The three most dangerous threats to faith, first of all, is wealth because it makes humans feel self-sufficient. And secondly, it's freedom because it allows humans to pursue their self-interests. And thirdly, technology because it empowers human effort by enabling them to get what they want. Okay? So we ourselves are our own greatest enemy because of our own native selfishness. The Christian faith calls humans away from themselves to a partnership with Christ to build his kingdom in the world. 
Okay, so that's the negative side. The three best opportunities for faith is wealth, because it meets the physical needs of the deprived. Wealth is only valuable as I give it away. Freedom is valuable because it provides the flexibility to serve deprived people. And once again, I bless you folks here with Anabaptist perspectives and kingdom channels and all that. You are using your freedom to serve deprived people. Technology is the same way. Anabaptist Perspectives is harnessing and leveraging available tools to do kingdom work where opportunity presents itself. We are seizing the moment. And I feel really, really good about that. Unlimited kingdom work awaits those equipped with wealth, freedom, and technology. Selflessness serves wherever needs surface, both local and distant. And we could talk quite a bit about what's on that overhead. But it's just quite an opportunity and a privilege to live in a land of freedom because, you know, that's not the norm. Some kind of persecution has been the historic norm for Christianity during its 2,000-year history. Mild persecution seems to provide the best environment in which Christianity can thrive and grow. Both severe persecution, which is Satan attacking as a roaring lion, and peace, prosperity, and freedom, the environment enjoyed by the flesh as Satan attacks as an angel of life, are more difficult for Christianity to handle. And that's part of my story for tonight. So the other night, I referenced God's dilemma. And uh, this is what we mean by God's dilemma. So God is love, and love means giving. And so God gives gifts. But the two, human tendency is to fit, turn around and face the gift and turn their back on God. When Jesus healed the 10 lepers, how many faced the gift? Out of 10? Nine. How many turned back and thanked God? Okay, so that invites us to the scriptures. So turn with me in your Bibles to, um, we'll look at several different passages here. First of all, go to Matthew 13, and we'll look at verses 44 and 45. This is Jesus speaking a parable of the kingdom of heaven. And that's what we're focusing on here in these evenings, the kingdom of heaven. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid. And for joy of it, he goes and sells all he has and buys that field. Okay, I understand that there's a dual reference, a dual fulfillment to that. Jesus discovered hidden treasures on the earth, and he went and sold all that he had so he could buy the treasures down here, okay? But it's also true for us. When we find Christ being as valuable as he is, we will sell everything we have so we can get him as our treasure, okay? It's a dual fulfillment, okay? Next verse. Again, he says the same truth twice. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant man seeking beautiful pearls 
who when he found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Well, that's true of both Jesus. When he saw there's a pearl here on the earth, he went to the extremes in leaving heaven, coming down here, suffering, humiliation, dying the death of the cross to buy us. He didn't have to, but he did. Okay, so for us, when we find out who Jesus really is, we sell everything we have. We lose our self-interest and we follow him because he teaches us something completely different. He teaches us to be selfless and to love other people and so on. So quite a bit can be said there. Now I want you to go to Jeremiah chapter 29. And here I'd like to read verses 4 through 14 to start with. And this is Jeremiah writing to the captives. He says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who were carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is God speaking. Now he's saying, Build houses and dwell in them. Plant gardens and eat their fruit. Take wives and beget sons and daughters. And take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands, so that they may bear sons and daughters, that you may be increased there and not diminished. And seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive, and pray for the, to the Lord for it, for in its peace you will have peace. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are in your midst deceive you, nor listen to your dreams which you cause to be dreamed, for they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. For thus says the Lord, after seven years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word towards you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Does that sound like those two parables? I think so. I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations, from all the places where I've driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you to the place from which I cause you to be carried captive. Now skip over to verse 19. That's what God says. But there are people who don't agree with God throughout history because they have not heeded my words, says the Lord, which I sent to them by my servants, the prophets, rising up early and sending them. Neither would they heed me, says the Lord. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, blah, 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 and he has a whole lot more curses to give. It's like these people had already seen what God will do eventually, God does mean what he says. I don't want to go that, go that direction. What I want to call our attention to is that God's way of calling people to himself is by wooing. He gives warnings and he gives invitations. He woos. He says, I will be found by you when you search for me with all your heart. God is such a gentleman. He does not push himself on people. 
he makes himself available for people who pursue him. Okay, so this is hugely important in our story because in Europe, under persecution, our people sought, sought God desperately. But when they came to America, they had freedom. Freedom is both the best thing and the worst thing that ever happened to our people. And I'll talk to you more about that later. You see, freedom is part of God's dilemma. He tells us to pray in Timothy for our government that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. He wants us. But God's dilemma is that when he provides that, people turn their backs on him. And so God could say, well, I know people are going to turn away from me, so I'll stop blessing them. But God can't do that because God is love. He just has to bless. So this is why we call it God's dilemma. We'll let him figure out his dilemma. We have enough of our own dilemma to figure out. Okay, so now... God has always been wooing people. And so God gives this message to people. Now I want you to notice something in Isaiah chapter 6. And this is kind of disheartening, but uh, this is what the scriptures say. But I think we need to be real about the story. And so if we start in verse 9 of chapter 6, this is where Isaiah is meeting the Lord. Uh, I'll start with verse, at the very end of verse 8 where Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And this is what God said. Go and tell this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. That sounds backwards. But what you would expect, he didn't argue at that point the question he raises is, Lord, how long shall I do this? And God said, until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitant, the houses are without a man, the land is utterly desolate, the Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land, but yet a tenth will be in it, and will return and be for consuming, as a terebinth tree or as an oak whose stump remains when it's cut down, so the holy seed shall be its stump. Tenth, what percentage of the lepers turn back and face God? What percent? A tenth. Now, in our businesses, are we content with a tenth of a return? The human condition is so poor But that's all God gets. I'm kind of, I, I, feel, I feel awkward even talking about this. But if you study history, you have to conclude this almost this way. We think that if we're proclaiming the truth, everybody ought to believe it, and there ought to be 100% response. But if you read things like Isaiah here, and you see what Jesus did with his ministry, a lot of talk, but only a few really get it only a tenth. 
In contrast to that, all the dogs in the world perfectly perform God's will. All the cows and horses in the world perfectly fulfill God's will. All the robins and all the hummingbirds perfectly fulfill God's will. All the oak trees and all the stars, everything but the humans. And there's where the problem is. And God knew this from the time he created things that this would happen. But he was willing to do it anyway. I mean, the picture of God here is so big. He sent Jesus into the world to redeem it. It's so broken that it seems like he's losing nine-tenths of it. But God is so big that he doesn't let anything go to waste. And I cannot tell you how God's going to deal with the other nine-tenths eventually. It's beyond me. So I'll just stop with that. But I would like to take a look at something in, Matthew, uh, in Revelation 3, verses 15 to 20, 22. If you have some insight as to what God's going to be up to uh, with the bigger picture, I would love to hear your ideas. This is the, to the Laodicea. God says, beginning at verse 15, he says, I know your works, Laodicea, the church, I know your works, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. Cold you would be refreshing, hot you're on fire for Christ. But this lukewarm stuff, neither cold nor hot, he says, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. And now here's why they're lukewarm. You say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and don't know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. That's what lukewarmness is. He says, I don't want you to be that way. I counsel you to buy from me gold, that precious, sought-after, valuable yellow stuff. Buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be actually rich and white garments that you may actually be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with eye salve that you can actually see the truth. Now, here's how God's redemptive hand works. He says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, give hard times to. And that happened to our forefathers in Europe. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Now, get that. He's the gentleman standing at the door and knocking, wooing. I have something for you if you let me in. He doesn't actually say it, but he basically means you don't have to. I have something for you if you will let me in. And you will discover what it is if you let me in. It's a matter of faith. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in with him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, to him who overcomes his unbelief and his lack of faith, I will grant with me to sit on my throne as I also overcame. See, Jesus doesn't ask us anything that he hasn't been willing to do himself. Jesus had it harder than any one of us here had it. He overcame all that. And then because of that, he's sitting down with his father on his throne, and he's inviting us to sit down with him and share that throne with him. Okay, so let's now go directly to the rest of this story. 
<clears throat> I talked to you about Hans Landis last night, and I read you that story. That story happened less than 100 years after the very beginnings in 1525. Okay, so I also told to you that down a little further southwest is Zurich. I'm sorry, is Bern, southwest of, of uh, Zurich was the city of Bern. And I have these for this, so I'm going to shut this thing off now and go with this. Okay, so a number of you sitting here, this is your family story. Happened in 1675. This is 150 years after our, the, our origins. Or we're going to say it's about uh, 60 years after Hans Landis was killed. When they finally killed Hans Landis, it made such a stink in the lo locality. That was it. They killed no more because of the stink that made in the community. Okay, so Switzerland, they were desperate to get us out. They wanted to have a Swiss church, a Reformed church, it wasn't spoiled by Anabaptism. They wanted to get rid of their Catholicism and, and have the perfect Reformed church. And we were thorns in their side. And we were bothering them because we insisted on righteousness. Churches that need to be filled with people who are actually righteous, not just people who profess to be righteous and talk religious things, but who were really actually righteous. And you heard what Hans Landa said to the people who were dealing with him last night. Okay, so where did this happen? It happened in Emmental, which is down there by Bern. This is a description of people considered a threat to the Reformed Church in Switzerland. And I talked to you last night about this man, Thorman, who wrote to his own people to convince them not to unite with our people. Persecution was actually increasing when this happened. Okay, so the common people in Canton, Bern, revealed, revered, the Swiss brethren, and spoken, spoke openly about their business integrity and moral purity. That was in stark contrast to the Reformed Church. The local people said the Swiss brethren were the best, most pious, dead-of-the-world Christians anywhere. They were persecuted and were therefore genuine. They increased in number in spite of persecution. They survived with no civil or political protection from the government. They preached with vitality and power, without wages or education. They converted only after a spiritual struggle, sometimes severe. And the story is, not all of them repented and converted. For some of these young people who were watching what was going on with their elders, the price was too high, and they did not become part of the church. And when they finally had to leave Switzerland, they didn't want to leave because some of their families were still in the Reformed Church. So this was a real, real serious issue with them. Their neighbors believed that they held a superior rank in the sight of God. They were good people, steadfast and genuine, did not gossip, did not talk about material goods, did not anger easily, had few worldly pleasures, did not drink alcohol, and worked hard quietly. 
The Swiss Brethren complained of lax local area churches as permitting sinners to profess repentance while continuing in their sinning ways, thus allowing a shallow conscience. No restraint against the hypocrisy of a declared repentance in an unamended life that followed. That was Swiss Brethren reflecting on their Reformed friends. They took a very serious view of sin as corrupting and deadening influence in human life. They measured all their faith and practice through the prism of Scripture. And they used the band to discipline members who strayed from a high standard of moral living. And if you want to check me out and learn some more, get this book, They Harry the Good People Out of the Land, which is taken from this book by George Thorman. And here is what it caps off. When the people were being pushed out of Switzerland by the Swiss government, they didn't want to leave because this is what they said. Our church is blooming as a rose among thorns. Let's love that. So it's our choice. So what do you see there? What do you see? Someone raise your hand. What's it say? It's our choice. What? Yes. It's victory, V-I-C-T-O-R-Y, but defeat is also possible. It's our choice. Okay, so to continue the story, Switzerland finally got us out. They put the screws on tight enough that they got us to move to the Palatinate. And uh, when we got to the Palatinate, the, uh, the rulers there said, we're tolerating you. We really don't want you, but yet we do want you because the uh, 30 years war had gone through and devastated the land, and they wanted these Swiss people to come in and build their farms, get rid of the weeds, build the broken farm buildings back up, have livestock, have pastures, till the land, and they did. But they made a rule. They said, anytime the original owner wants it, he can get it back again at the original price. All the labor you put into it, that's, that's your problem, not ours. It's called the right of retraction. But they were willing to do it because they didn't have any place else to go. They made a second stipulation. They said, you're not allowed to meet in any more, any greater group than 20 families. And you're not allowed to make any converts from any of the people around you. We are tolerating you people. You're not allowed to increase. And what part of the reason they did that is because of what happened in Munster. 
It's like a love-hate relationship. They wanted them to rejuvenate the land, but they didn't want them because they were Anabaptists. So we went, and we were there for a few years, and and then uh, William Penn came north of us there in the Palatinate, and he began to uh, preach to his Quaker friends, and some of those Quakers, some Mennonites converted to Quakerism, especially in the northern part, up by Crefeld. And uh, he was opening up his land to Pennsylvania at the same time, and he invited his Quaker friends to come over. And it's Philadelphia was, Pennsylvania was established in 1683. And uh, in 1707, some of these Quakers got Mennonites to come over, and they checked it out, and that's part of our story. And once that happened, it's like there was a push out of Europe because of all the persecution, all the economic hardship, they could barely make it. They were so poor that it, that it took the Dutch Mennonites to provide the finances to get them across the ocean. And once our people find out, found out that the Swiss will pay our way, the Swiss, I mean, the Dutch said, of course, not too many of you, but we didn't listen. Once we found out that they would actually do it, we came. They said, stop. We came some more. Stop. We kept coming. And they said, stop. But we kept coming and kept coming. And they kept paying and they kept paying and got us across. That's how we got here. And that's one of the reasons we're called Mennonites. Because these Mennonites paid our way across. Like I said the other night, we're not really Mennonites. We're Swiss brethren. We're called Mennonites because, partly because of that and partly because we adopted the, the Dortra Confession. Okay, so here are the reasons for the uh, first Swiss-German migration. We started coming in 1707, and we, we kept coming boatload by boatload until 1760 when we had to stop because of the French and Indian War. Once the war started, you can't have boats bringing people in the high seas. Okay, so here's why we came. There was war devastation in Europe. There was heavy taxation over there. There was extraordinarily severe winter in 1708 where even some of the trees died. There was religious quarrels going on, but not persecution. And part of those quarrels, the Amish separation, people were still feeling that. By the way, when we started coming, when we got on the boats, when they put us on the boats to go down the Rhine River, when some Amish people discovered there were Mennonites on board, they got off. They wouldn't ride the same boat. That's how strong the feelings were yet at that point. The amazing thing, when they came across over to this country, they settled next to the Mennonites in Lancaster County, but not among them. And there's a a traditional line in Pennsylvania, from Lancaster to Intercourse is called 340. The Amish settled south of 340, and the Mennonites settled north of 340. Right next, but not among. There was land hunger for the older and a desire for adventure in the younger. And there was liberal advertising by colonial proprietors. In Pennsylvania, especially William Penn, come over. You can have the good land. And whenever some of our people went over, do you you know how they discovered what the best land would be? None of them were there before. How can you tell which land is the best land? Someone tell me. 
You look at the size of the trees. If you have big trees, that means there's good land. If you have scrawny trees, you don't want that land. Now, that makes an extra problem. How much work is it to cut down a big tree? How are you going to handle big trees to build houses? You want to build a log cabin, but you don't put logs this big in a log cabin. And so what they usually did is they girdled these big trees. They just made them die, and they planted among them for a while until the trees rotted, and then they could have more and better fields. I have a picture I could show you. I don't think I brought it with me. Okay, so at the same time all this was going on, the British government really was glad to get us over here. They cooperated with us. All right, so that's the reason for coming. And then we had the wars, and uh, the war stopped, but people kept coming. And so whenever our immigration opened up again in 1820 to 1860, we have the second migration. Now, the first migration, people came into Lancaster, into Philadelphia, and went from there to Peckway, Lancaster. Maybe I should show you those maps right now. Let me show you that. Okay, so the first wave people landed here in Philadelphia, and the land that William Penn had for them was right in here. See the Peckway Creek? That's where they started. And uh, it wasn't too long, and more and more people came, and that got full, and so their way, their first path of migration was going west through Lancaster, down by York, and out here by Gettysburg and the Chambersburg and down through the Shenandoah Valley. That was their way west back in those days. And any place you saw these mountains here was where the Indians were. Um, maybe I'll just tell you a story. You all know about the Jacob Hostetler story, which happened uh, uh, up here by Charlottesville, right there. That's where the Indian massacre, the Hostetler massacre was. Okay, let me tell you a story about what happened here at about right in here, right near Wrightsville. This is really special to me because my wife's family land was right there where this happened. William Penn said, I want to keep part of this whole thing for myself. He was selling off a bunch of this land, but this land back in here along the river is called Penn Manor. It's called Penn Manor to this day. Okay, in a part of Penn Manor right about here, is where the last Conestoga Indians had their village. The rest of them got killed off. And uh, William Penn had promised them land. And Chief Shahes had the deed to this land with him when this happened. But the, the Paxton boys who were west of Harrisburg, west of the river here, up in these mountains, William Penn said, you Scotch-Irish, you're kind of warlike. You can live out on the frontier. You deal with these Indians. He didn't make us do that. He protected us. But these boys out here said, we want you Quakers to give us a militia to protect us against these Indians because these Scotch-Irish believe the only good Indian is a dead one. But the Quakers said, sorry, no, we're non-resistant. We don't do things like that. And that made these boys mad. 
And they said, okay, if you folks are going to do your job and govern us, we're going to do it ourselves. So one day, they came down, about 30 of them, came down to this Conestoga Indian village here in Lancaster County, right next to her people, and killed every Indian in the village. They came in, and in what, on one particular house, there was a barrel. One of those boys shot a hole in the barrel just to make sure that if there's anything in the barrel, he gets hit too. They went to Chief Shaw Hayes and he killed him in his bed with his promise from William Penn with him. They left, feeling good. They had killed all these Indians. But there was a survivor. There was a boy in the barrel. And the bullet went through his arm, not through his heart, and so he survived. He is the one who survived to tell the story. Well, when the, the Paxton boys discovered that not all the Indians were dead, they said, okay, we got more work to do. So the local people decided it's not even safe. Some of the Indians weren't home, I'm sorry. They were out selling brooms. The, the men in that village were out selling brooms. And so whenever the uh, Paxton boys realized that there's still men around, they had to finish their job. But the local people says, it's not safe for you to be around here. So they took them down to Lancaster here and put them in the Lancaster jail. Not because they're bad, but be just to protect them from the Scotch-Irish. When the Scotch-Irish heard that they were down in Lancaster, they said, okay, let's go, go get them. So they went all the way down here into Lancaster, went into the Lancaster jail, broke the jail doors down, and went in and killed the rest of them in there. Now they're really feeling good because every Indian dead is an advantage. So they said, whoo, this is heady stuff. They knew that right down here in Philadelphia, the Moravian Christian Indians were on an island for their protection, and they knew about this. They decided, okay, there's more Indians to kill. So they got 300 strong, rode all the way down past Lancaster, heading down here to Philadelphia, and Ben Franklin sent an emissary out and said, now, boys, that's enough of it. You go back there. You're not going to accomplish anything like doing all this. Just go home, shut up, be quiet. And they did. And that's the end of the story. And you can go to this area, and you can see the marker that uh, is still there to this day that reminds us of that story. Okay, so let's zoom in just a little bit more. Okay, this is up close. This is the first land, tract of land, that was purchased on the Peckway River. And uh, it came out from, from Philadelphia to here. When Barbara and I lived in Pennsylvania, before we moved to Texas, we lived along the Kanoi Creek uh, we lived at Bainbridge. We lived about right here. You see Paxton? Uh, it's called Paxtang today. And here's Harrisburg. Here's Lebanon. And uh, this blue mountain over here is where the Indians came out of to kill the Jacob Hostetler family, which would have been up in this area here someplace. So if you'd be more familiar with this, I could point out some other things, but I don't think I will today. Okay, so I know there's at least one Canadian here. So when some of us went from Pennsylvania, because we wanted to be loyal to Great Britain, when we got off the ships, we promised loyalty to Great Britain. Whenever the, I mean, when the American Revolution happened, we had these patriots who were getting rid of Great Britain, and our people were in a quandary. We've already promised loyalty to Great Britain. Well, we can't become patriots. And so a bunch of us decided to move to Ontario. And our friend, uh, Mrs. Uh, 
uh, Evie. She was a weaver. And she went up here, and she'd have to tell me where she settled here. But here's Lake Erie, and here's Lake Ontario, and I don't know exactly where she was. Can you tell us where you were on that? Kitchener. Okay, maybe you could point out to us later where that is exactly. But uh, that's, that's her story anyway. Okay, so in conclusion, I want to stop early tonight. In conclusion. No, I got to say something else yet. Sorry. Sorry. Before we do this conclusion. And this is the stuff that I hate to tell you, but we, could, we did not handle freedom very well. We came over here, and we found this rich land, and we farmed to our heart's content, and we could make money for the first time in our lives. And we collected our money, and we became wealthy. And when God's, it's God's dilemma went to work, we started focusing on money, and we forgot it. And we went into what is called our dark ages, In Europe, we knew how to be subjects, but we came to Pennsylvania, we're citizens. In citizenship, every person is a part of the government. If you're a subject, you obey the king, you obey his ministers. But when you're a citizen, you are the government. So we tried voting for a while. We liked these Quakers who kept the peace. So we voted the Quakers in. The Quakers stayed in office because the Mennonites and Amish voted for them. But uh, the, uh, the Scotch-Irish got to be too strong. They finally threw the Quakers out. And, of course, we shut up after that. We tried politics one time and didn't work, and so we were out. Except that throughout the, the story in the country, not all of us stopped voting. And so we have a voting record. John F. Funk, when, he, when it came to the Civil War, he was a great Republican. He went to Republican political rallies. He threw his hat up in the air and shout huzzah and so on. He'd go to torchlight parades. He got a new suit. His wife didn't like him wearing this new suit because the sparks from the torchlight parade would burn holes in his suit. And so, uh, but when he met Christ, that all stopped. It seems like God laid hold of a man in our dark ages to help us. His name was John F. Funk. And there's, there's a whole biography on him. Um, Right here it is. I brought it. Bless the Lord, O my soul. A biography of John Fretz Funk. I'm tremendously indebted to this man. He called to his work at Elkhart this man, John S. Coffin. His name was John. Have any of you read either of these two books? This, if there's any one man, along with John F. Funk, who saved our people, it's this man. This man was such a gentle teacher. In our dark ages, he came to us and ministered to us and taught us our own story and our own doctrine. And people loved him. 
People before that were just exiting the church in numbers until he came along and helped us understand that we were throwing away the gold. If you want to know more about the story, this particular book, The Mennonite Church in America, details that. But if you want something even more detailed, it's this set of books here, The Mennonite Experience in America. Volume 1 is entitled Land, Piety, and Peoplehood. This runs the establishment of Mennonite colonies and communities from 1683 to 1790, from the start to 1790. Then it picks up with this one, Peace, Faith, Nation. This is Mennonites and Amish in 19th century America. And it goes on to the third one, Vision, Doctrine, War, Mennonite Identity and Organization in America, 1890 to 1930. And lastly, Mennonites in American Society, 1930 to 1970. This is the modernity and the persistence of religious community. Okay, in our dark ages, this is the only book that was published. It's called Saving Faith. It's called Addresses to Youth. There was a man, his name was Christian Burkholder, who had the understanding of the stage four and did what he could in the midst of the dark ages. There were two uh, separations, two divisions. If you've ever heard of Reformed Mennonites or the Her Mennonites, they started their own church because of all the darkness that was going on in the old Mennonite church. And then later there was another man by the name of uh, Stauffer, Jacob Stauffer, who started the Pike Mennonites. Again, because of all the politics and the wealth and all the stuff that was going on in the church, it was embarrassing. I don't know what I would have done in those days. If I had joined the church, it was, it was bad, really bad. But there must have been something that God could appeal to. I'm going to tell you something dark, show you something dark. Okay, think about coming across the ocean. If you have one husband and one wife, and they have children at the rate of four, four children per family. One husband and wife, first generation has four children. Second generation, there's 16. Third generation, there's 64. Fourth, 256. By the 10th generation, they're a million strong. I am the 10th generation from becoming a cross. Now think about, there were thousands of us who came across. What should our numbers be? Suppose that there were uh, 3,000 Mennonites who came across. By this rate, what should our numbers be today? What should they be? Do some math. Three billion. Are we anywhere close to three billion? Of course not. And there's other reasons for that, but here's the saddest reason. If you have 
We'll say that same couple came across. Uh, the blue here represents faithfulness, a faithful couple, and they have four children. The blue is faithful. One, two, three faithful, one unfaithful. And you have that same ratio. In the second generation, one, two, three faithful, one unfaithful. One, two, three faithful, one unfaithful. The unfaithful will most likely have all unfaithful children. And this one, one, two, three faithful, one unfaithful. By the third generation down here, there is a total of 39 faithful and 45 unfaithful. That explains why we had the tremendous losses in our country. And the tremendous losses are all related to God's dilemma. And those books that I shared with you uh, trace the story of how that worked out. So I'm just going to conclude there. I know it's a very sad note to conclude on, and I'm, I'm not ever going to show you what I was going to show you earlier. So thank you for your attention. Before I sit down, is there any particular questions you'd like to raise? That's a good question. They were not indentured servants. Most of their neighbors had to, were indentured servants. That means they had to work for several years for somebody who paid their way across. They came across free. So if they had some kind of money left over, then they used that, or they borrowed from family or something. But they did have enough that they could actually purchase land. That very first tract that I showed you, that was all paid for by money that they had. In fact, those very first people might have had enough that the Dutch didn't have to sponsor them, that first group. But once this whole thing got started, then you don't have such well-to-do people coming. And I don't know all the details of where they got their money. Anything else? Okay, so if you ask the official Mennonite numbers, I think right now it's about 1.7 million. That's worldwide. Okay, so most of the Mennonite numbers today are in Africa. They're not in this country. If you want numbers, the conservative Mennonites like we are, there are 39,000 of us. And I think the, the most recent number, uh, Mennonite Church USA, I think there's 119,000 of them. But those people are on the decline numbers-wise. They're not even producing enough children to reproduce their own ranks. Their, their rate of childbirth, I think, is 1.4 children per family. And they are losing their young people. Their young people are not staying. And so they are decreasing in numbers. It's the conservatives who are actually increasing in numbers today. Now... Let me say this. I talked to a Mennonite female pastor from Kenya one time when I was in Goshen. And she said, yeah, we have a lot of numbers over there. Yeah, she said, but our Christianity is skin deep. So they're called Mennonites, but when it came down to values that they would die for, she was basically saying, we don't have those. But they still have the Mennonite name. Okay, so I don't know if you know this, but on the Dutch-Russian side, there are Thousands and thousands and thousands of these people in Bolivia. 
Argentina and Mexico and Canada. It is just incredible what's happening with those people, numbers-wise and spiritually-wise. It's, it's just, that's a totally different story. Okay, any other, anything else? Yes. Okay, I didn't keep my promise. I'm sorry. <laughs>